Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruits be like Lebanon and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people bless in him, all nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Darren, if you want to come up, we will pray for you. God, we thank you so much for Darren. We thank you for his family. We thank you for the ways that he perseveres through trials while he continues to call out, blessed be the name of the Lord. We thank you for his preparation. We thank you for his heart. We thank you for his wife and his girls who stand by his side and encourage him on sermon days and as they get ready to travel. God, we thank you so much for him and for his heart. God, help us just hear what you want us to hear through him. In your son's name, amen. Sometimes just reading God's word and hearing God's word read has a profound impact on your soul. And I certainly felt that, Amy, as you read um, this psalm. And of course, I've read it many times um, (laughs) preparing for this morning. And so God's word is powerful. And I am believing that God will speak to you all this morning in the same way that he spoke to me um, this week. I will say, as I tried to prepare for this passage, it was as if I was thrown into an ocean, or so it felt like that. You know, I'm, I'm coming to God's word, I'm hearing all of this, this, these beautiful things, things about God's justice, about his righteousness, and I was... I think probably around Wednesday or Thursday, I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. 
this is, this is too much. This is a lot. And then God began to do a work in me, showing me that it's okay. Take in my word for what it is. If, if, if you want to be lost, if you want to be consumed with something, God's word is the thing to be consumed with. And Psalm 72 has a lot to show us. So what's going on? If you have your Bibles open, please keep them open. As we said, the projector's not working. I'm going to try my best to sort of give you the page numbers in the Bible for, for when I want you to turn somewhere or go somewhere. So please listen carefully. But Psalm 72, what's going on here? We'll start off with who wrote it. Okay. Um, the evidence seems to suggest that this was written uh, actually by King David and for Solomon. Now that seems maybe a little weird because you see the word at the very top of uh, this, chap- this chapter that says of, okay, it says of Solomon. But in the Hebrew, the word of can also mean for, okay, for somebody, okay. That plus the fact that verse 20 says that this is the end of the prayers of David seems to suggest that David is writing this psalm, probably towards the end of his life, okay, and it was regarded by Jews as the last psalm of David, okay? So in terms of the themes that we see in this psalm, we see justice, we see righteousness. This psalm is a heartfelt prayer for the king and the kings of Israel, namely Solomon, that he would rule with righteousness, with justice, after all, the word may is mentioned at least 10 times, so this, this is something that concerns David. Righteousness, proper governance. And there are two dimensions to the psalm. On the one hand, there are the prayers and hopes for the king that he would take care of the poor, crush the oppressor, that he'd be the source of renewal and refreshment for the people and bring peace, that he'd have a worldwide government and that his fame would last forever. That's the first dimension, the hopes for the king. And then we see the other part of this psalm, which are the responses of the people, namely that they would fear God, respect this king forever, that the people would bow down and serve this king, that they would give him gifts, their time, their talent, their treasure and that all the nations would serve him and be blessed by him. That's the other aspect of this psalm. And of course, lingering in the background of this psalm is, or are, two promises, two big promises made by God. The first promise, lingering in the background of this psalm, is found in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 through 3, Uh, Genesis is the first book of the Bible, so just flip a few pages in and you'll find it if you want to follow along with me. If not, that's okay. But Genesis 12, 2 through 3 says this, and I will make a great nation, make of you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then, of course, there is the promise in 2 Samuel 7, 
made to David, which says, I will raise up for your offspring, or, or excuse me, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So those are the two promises in the background of this psalm. This is what leads one commentator to say that Psalm 72 is Old Testament theology communicating Old Testament hope. In other words, the main point of this text is that David prayed that the king would rule with perfect justice and that all of creation would be blessed by him and through him. And I'm convinced that this passage is utterly important for the church today and for those who don't believe in Christianity for two main reasons. Firstly, in our modern day sort of Western culture, we tend to utterly separate the gospel from the fact that God is obsessed with spreading his justice and righteousness throughout all of creation. And secondly, maybe even more fundamentally than that, is that this passage is important because you and I, at the core of who we are, sits this sort of self-righteousness. It makes us feel like we're not a part of the problem, they are. And so I believe God is giving us something this morning to help us dig up the sin in our hearts so that we can expose it and begin healing and living in God's kingdom the way that we are meant to. And so my main point this morning is this. This is the main thing I want you to take away from the sermon. This is the main thing I want you to think about as you go out throughout this week. Here it is. God's justice is revealed in the gospel, and it's to be showcased by those transformed by it. God's justice is revealed in the gospel, and it's to be showcased by those transformed by it. There are three ways in which this text pushes me to this conclusion or this argument. Firstly, we see in this passage that God is just. Therefore, we should behold him. That's the first thing I want us to see. God is just. Therefore, behold him. Secondly, God's justice moves him towards the afflicted. So embody it, namely God's justice. Secondly, God's justice moves him towards the afflicted, so embody it. And lastly, God's justice is for all nations, so proclaim it. God's justice is for all nations, so proclaim it. Verses 1 through 3, follow me closely here. God is just. Verses 1 through 3. David says, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. The first thing we see here is that God is just, or you might say righteous. And this is obvious, by the way, that David prays in verses 1 and 2. We see here that David is concerned that the king rules justly and cares for God's people in the way that God cares for his people. 
See, David recognizes that God is the source of all justice and righteousness. And it's through the righteous reign of the king that blessings, shalom, would come to God's people throughout the world. But what do the words justice and righteousness mean in the Bible? And what does the Bible mean when it says that God is just or righteous? You see, this is the central question, isn't it? Because in our context, there are so many different views and definitions of justice, and not all definitions are created equal. You see, there's social justice, there's racial justice, there's environmental justice, and there's a whole slew of other cultural and ethical issues that people are concerned with. But to answer the question of what does justice mean, we have to start with God. I want you to understand, saints, that when the Bible speaks of God being just or holy or righteous or love for that matter, the Bible is not saying that God is partly just in the same way that a soda is partly water and partly sugar. No, the Bible, when it speaks of God's attributes, it's describing who God is in his very essence. This is what's called the doctrine of divine simplicity. Kevin DeYoung has a video on this, and I would highly encourage you to watch it. But this doctrine is important because we often say things like, well, you know, God is, he's wrathful, but he's mostly love. God is gracious, but he's fundamentally holy. But this doctrine shows us that God is not more fundamentally one attribute than another, nor is he a mixture of different attributes similarly to a a pie graph, where he's 20% justice, 20% holy, etc. This is important because not only does this help us understand what it means for God to be just, but it pushes the discussion, it pushes the discussion of justice back into the proper sphere that it should occupy, namely the existence of God. Brothers and sisters, contrary to popular belief, if God does not exist, justice does not exist. Without God, there is no such thing as justice. And of course, on the flip side of this is that we must go to Scripture to get a consistent and beautiful picture of what justice is. But there's more, and this is a little technical, so try to follow me carefully. I won't spend too, too much time on this. But the words justice and righteousness, they're usually signified by two Hebrew words, which I won't pronounce properly, I'm sure, mishpat and Zadikah. Mishpat, this word is usually rendered justice or judgments in your Bible. And this word signifies acquittal or punishing people based on the merits of the case, regardless of race, social class, etc. It means giving people their rights as well, though. It also means defending the poor, the, the, the orphan, the widow, the sojourner, the, the children. This is what's called rectifying justice. So that's mishpat. And then on the other hand, there's zadikah, which refers to virtue 
or being upright with God and, and, and therefore putting all other relationships right. This is what's called primary justice. This is behavior that if was prevalent in the world, it would render rectifying justice totally unnecessary because everyone would be in a right relationship with God and others. And God is said to be righteous in both of these ways. And these words are mentioned literally over a thousand times in the Bible, often used interchangeably and even right next to each other. That's what we see in verses 1 and 2. But we also see this in places like Proverbs chapter 21, verse 15, where it says, it is a joy to the righteous to do justice, but dismay to those who do evil. Or Isaiah chapter 5, 16. Yahweh, but Yahweh of hosts, is exalted by justice. And the holy God shows himself holy by righteousness. And we see the same focus in the New Testament. This is just not an Old Testament phenomenon. We see this in the first chapter of Luke with reference to John the Baptist's parents. Luke chapter 1, verse 6. And they, Zechariah and Elizabeth, were both righteous in the sight of God, living blamelessly in all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. So, word study aside, here's what I'm trying to say. This should tell us right away that when the Bible speaks of justice and righteousness, we need to take it seriously. Okay? And and I'll say this as well, um, this kind of shows us that the way that we think about it today is probably too restricted. The easiest way I can explain what I'm trying to say is this. If you want to write this down in one sticky sort of statement, it's this. Justice is God's righteousness in action. Justice is God's righteousness in action. And so, before we move on, how do we apply this? What, how does this change our lives? Family, you and I need to behold God's justice. If we want it to change us, we need to behold it. We need to see that God is just, and we need to just let that soak into our soul. I, I, I think that in the church, we, we do this thing where we get so caught up in the culture war, we get so caught up in fighting this sort of left-right thing and answering questions like, you know, is social justice, you know, a gospel issue? And, and, and my main concern is not answering those questions. And I don't want that to be your main concern either. I want your main concern to be, are you beholding God's justice? Are you seeing God for who he actually is? Because when you start to behold God for who he is, you realize just how tremendously stupid those questions are. Because if God is just, then to ask if justice or social justice or whatever is like a gospel issue misses the point. Because justice runs much deeper than that framing of the issue. It's like, asking if the sun is hot or if water is wet. Like, 
Namely, the, the, the righteousness of God and his just workings in the world and in society jump out of virtually every page of the Bible. If justice and or righteousness isn't important, good luck reading Paul. Good luck reading the Old Testament. Good luck reading this psalm. Our greatest argument for the importance of justice, both social and individual, is that God exists. And so as a brief aside, I also want to encourage those who are suffering. I want to say that even though the world's justice system might be broken, God's justice system is never broken. And so, before I move on, I know that there are many people in the church, um, maybe you're visiting and social justice or justice, just broadly speaking, is this complex issue. Maybe you consider yourself really invested in what we call social justice. Um, And I want to encourage you. I don't necessarily want to condemn you, but I do want to challenge you. I really want to challenge you to wrestle with some fundamental questions. Is your view of justice comprehensive enough to speak to the whole person, mind, body, and soul? Secondly, is your view of justice holistic enough to account for both corporate and personal responsibility in light of our fallen world? And thirdly, is your view of social justice comprehensive enough to deal with those who get away from justice? Because the Christian view is. The Christian view actually deals with the problem of people escaping justice. So let me transition to the second thing I want to show us, which is how exactly does God's justice operate in real time? That's the second thing I want to, to talk about. How does this work? How, is it, how has it operated throughout history? If you have your Bibles open, look with me at verses 2 through 4 and then verses 12 through 14. In these verses, we see that God's justice moves him toward the afflicted. And therefore, we should embody it. We should embody it. Look at verses two through four. May he, God, judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. For he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and he saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life. And precious is their blood in his sight. When you and I read this, because we're blinded by our own cultural sort of standpoint, we're, we're maybe warmed by these verses, but we're not blown away. We're interested in these verses, but we're not really appalled by them. But the Jews who heard this psalm would have been astounded. Because these verses show us that the God of the Bible and his justice was and is totally different from all the other religions. 
Because you see, in David's day, and even during the time of the New Testament, it wasn't uncommon, it was not uncommon, okay, to be concerned with the sort of kind of justice and government and laws. That's not the thing. What was uncommon, I should, I would say even unheard of, is that God would be concerned with the poor, the widow, the oppressed, the children, the weak. It was totally unheard of for God to say that the blood, the life, (laughs) the life of these people are precious to him. Scholars have pointed out that in every other religion, it's basically God working through the rich, the powerful, the elites, the military leaders, the priests, but not the God of the Bible. And this is the kind of king and, and, and the kind of ruler and society we all wish we had, right? It's the world we all want, a world where there's no longer a need for social services. There's no longer a need for charities or homeless shelters. And we see that God's justice moves him toward the afflicted. And church, I I, I believe that we should embody God's justice and be moved towards those who are hurting and afflicted as well. Now, if I stopped right here and I just said, okay, God is just, go out there, help those who are victims of injustice, go help those who are poor, go help the afflicted, I think that would make for a good pep talk but it wouldn't work. And in fact, that's actually how a lot of social gospel sort of messages go. That's how it went in a lot of churches in the early 1900s. It was a message about the need to transform society without the appeal to have our hearts transformed. But that's not us. That's not what the scripture teaches that won't actually bring about lasting social change. It won't work, me just telling you to go out and do justice. Here's why. Let me give you an example from Daddy and Noe time. Noe is my daughter, Noelle. We call it Daddy and Noe time. We read together every night. And so we were reading, I think this was uh, two nights ago, Noel and I were reading about Jonah. And if you don't know about Jonah, he basically is this reluctant prophet who God says, hey, look, go to the Ninevites. They're difficult people, but I love them. And preach the gospel to them. And Jonah's like, one ticket to not Nineveh. That's what the Jesus Storybook Bible says. And as I'm going through the story, Noel just stops me and says, Dad, like, Daddy, wow, like, Man, Jonah sinned this much, but I would never sin that much. I only sinned this much. And I was like, what? What do, you, what do you mean you only sinned this much? And she was like, yeah, Jonah sinned this much. He, he really disobeyed God, but me, I only sinned this much. And I was like, well, how do you know? And she was like, well, yeah, like the time that uh, you know, I asked you for an Encanto Lego set and you said no, I, I only sinned this much because I got angry. And I was like, ah, I want the Lego set. And I was like how do you know you wouldn't do the same thing that Jonah did if you were in his shoes? And we went back and forth, you know, for a few minutes like this. I don't know how successful I was in discipling her in that moment. But it struck me, as funny as it is, that this is a really interesting thing, right? Because I I never, I promise, especially as your pastor, I promise you, I never sat down with Noel and said, you know, 
life is really about comparing yourself to other people and weighing your sins against theirs. And I never had that conversation. She just, it just came up out of her. And, and I want to say that that is all of our default positions. The reason why I can't just say go out and do justice is because we have a self-justifying mechanism in our hearts whereby we look at our sort of sense of righteousness and go to God and say, hey, look at, look at my hot garbage. It isn't my hot garbage like really, like, this is some really good stuff. I think, I think I'm good with you. Like, check this out. It won't work. It won't work. We have a sort of self-righteousness whereby we think that we merit our good standing with God and other people. We succumb to what's called works righteousness, which is the way in which we live, either consciously or unconsciously, trying to earn, earn God's approval. We all struggle with this. And we see this in our culture on the left, so to speak. There is often a sort of self-justifying pride that says, hey, I'm better than those people who don't get justice the way I do. You better not critique me or else you're actually part of the problem. And so if I just say, hey, just go out and embody God's justice, what's going to happen? They're going to feel more proud. There's going to be greater pride, greater self-righteousness. We have the same problem on the right. There's a self-justifying pride that says, you know, there's really not a problem here, and if there is, I'm certainly not responsible to anyone except myself. And so if you say, hey, go embody God's justice, people tend to get worn out. They, they get tired of hearing, like, I'm a sinner. They get tired of it. And they get so critical to the point to where they deny that there's even such a thing as oppressor and oppressed, or corporate sin, even though the Bible is full of those kinds of things. Like, Proverbs and this psalm came long before Mark's. And so, the only way to embody God's justice and minister to people is by being transformed by God's justice. It's by beholding God's justice, not in the abstract as though you're studying a philosophical treatise, but rather it's through beholding, encountering God's justice. And where do we see God's justice most clearly displayed? Is it in the way that God dealt with Sodom and Gomorrah? Is it the Exodus? That was pretty crazy, pretty awesome. Would it be God bringing back his people out of slavery from, uh, let's say, the Babylonian captivity or something like that? No. That's not the way that God's justice is most visibly shown. No, it's shown through the gospel. It's shown through God saving sinners. Go with me to page 940 in your, in your Bible, Romans chapter 3. Okay. I won't read all of it. I might skip around a bit, so follow me carefully. But go to Romans chapter 3. That's page 940 in your Bible. This is what Paul says. What then? Are, are, are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jew and Greek, are under sin. 
as it's written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. Now, I'll pause there. Think with me for a moment. When Paul says none is righteous, what is he getting at here? Is he simply trying to say that that no one has inner virtue? That's how we tend to think of righteousness today. Are you a good person on the inside? No, I, I don't think that's what Paul is simply trying to say. I don't think his definition of righteousness was, was that restrictive because look what he keeps saying after that. Look, look at your Bibles again in verse 12. He says, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet, so action, their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace, shalom, they've not known. There's no fear of God, the king, before their eyes. Paul goes on to say in verse 20, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified or declared righteous in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But the, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to say this, astounding. This was to show God's righteousness, his justice. Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what becomes of your boasting? It's excluded. It's excluded. Maybe that just excites me. I don't know. But God's justice on display is seen at the cross as he is saving people. And so when when, when you understand the gospel, you take justice way more seriously because you understand the seriousness of God's law and you savor the precious work of the Holy Spirit to transform you. On the one hand, you don't find yourself boasting, saying, look at me, look at how woke I am. Look at how active I am in the community. Because you realize that your righteousness or your justice apart from God is a bunch of dung. So you're patient with people who don't get it. When you understand the gospel, you're patient with people who don't get it. And on the other hand, you don't find yourself diminishing the importance of some sins. Rather, you recognize the importance and wickedness of all sin. And you concern yourself with rectifying the sin in your own heart and then fixing the the sin and how it manifests itself socially and in relationships within your own context as best as you can. See, God's justice can only be embodied by people who have hearts transformed by God's justice. 
You can't embody that which hasn't gripped you and changed you. And so, as a review, here's what we've seen. We've seen that God is just. We should behold him. And secondly, we've seen that God's justice moves us towards the afflicted. And we should embody that. And lastly, we see that God's justice is for all the nations. So we should proclaim it. We should proclaim it. We see this in verses 8 through 20. Once again, I won't read every verse here, but try to follow along with me. David says, may he, the king, have dominion from sea to sea. Okay, sea to sea, worldwide. And from the river to the ends of the earth. He goes on to say, may the desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. Verse 11, he says, may all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Long may he live. Long may he live. Old Testament theology, uh, in some ways, kind of was a sort of come and see approach, whereby people would come into the nation of Israel, maybe adopt their ways, their practices, and in so doing, they would be blessed. But here we see something a little different. You see, the people are coming to this king, but... At the same time, God's glory through this king is making its way out into the world. And so Psalm 72 says that the afflicted will be saved when they call on his name. When they call on his name. But how can they call on whom they've never heard of? And how will they hear unless someone is sent? And so the New Testament is very aware of who Jesus is is, namely, the seed through whom all nations would be blessed, but also the, 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 the divine king, the divine king prophesied about in the Old Testament. And so in our sermon series in Matthew, we've illustrated the kingship of Christ many times. Um, and, you know, I think if we, you know, eventually we'll get to the end of Matthew. Maybe it'll be a year or so. <laughs> but in our sermon series, we will eventually get to Matthew 28. And in Matthew chapter 28, we see something really interesting. The Great Commission, right? And what does it say? In Matthew 28, Jesus is worshipped by his disciples. And then he says, hey, look, I've received all authority on heaven and earth. I'm the king. I'm I'm the, the king of Psalm 72. I have all authority. And so now I want you, 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 Amy, You, Bobby, I want you to go out and tell people about me, about my justice, as shown in the gospel and through your life of good deeds. That's our privilege. It's amazing. And so now God's kingdom is on the move. It's proclaimed and embodied by his disciples as they go. And as God's justice transforms unjust and unrighteous people, they go forth with a concern for the afflicted and the oppressed. And as they live righteously, they proclaim the king and his call to repent and believe. Now, 
before I kind of move on to maybe some closing remarks, it's important to say that I know a lot of people will say like, hey, it's nice to talk about justice, but Christians don't exactly get this right. And I would say, you're right. We don't exactly get this right. Um, (laughs) However, I would say there are two things you need to keep in mind. It's not just that Christianity has been the force behind some of the greatest social change in the world. It's not just that that is true. It's also true that Christianity actually has the internal resources for dealing with the problem of hypocrisy. The fact is that many of the so-called Christians behind some of the most unjust systems, such as chattel slavery, were just that. They were so-called Christians. And you might say, well, that's really convenient, doesn't it? Isn't it? Like, you just get to say, oh, they're not Christians. And it is convenient, but it's also true. Because the Bible says that there will be, there will be, and there are false Christians, false prophets, wolves in sheep's clothing who say that they're walking in the light, but they don't actually live it. But besides that, you have to understand what Christians are actually saying when we talk about evangelism and missions and all of this stuff. You have to really understand what we're saying. It's not the sort of inquisition thing that you might think of, right? It's much more liberating than that. Hear John Piper on missions. Uh, This is from his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. He says this. He says, missions isn't a recruitment project for God's labor force. It's a liberation project from the heavy burdens and hard yokes of other gods. When you see mission like that, changes things, doesn't it? So God's grace changes how people live. It propels them towards righteous living. This is communicated countless times in the New Testament. Um, it's, it's really everywhere. I mean, it's in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, where Paul says we've been saved by grace through faith, and there are good works for us to walk in. It's in, it's in 2 Timothy 2, 16, where Paul says all of Scripture, both Old and New Testament, are for us, therefore our profit, therefore correction, so that God's people would be trained in righteousness, equipped for every good work. We see this in Titus chapter 2. where Paul says, the grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our great Savior, who gave himself for us to redeem us from from lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, zealous for good works. And so, embody God's justice, behold God's justice, proclaim God's justice. Now, as I sort of close, there is a question um, that I think we should all be asking, which is that, that sort of practical question. How, how can I walk in obedience and faithfully do justice? How, how do I do this? There are three things. I want you to write this down. If you're a note taker, um, please write this down. 
The first thing that you should do is pray. Um, this entire psalm is a prayer. We see this word may over and over and over again. So, so, so pray that God would show you the world around you for what it truly is, where there's brokenness, how you can get involved, how you can change things. Start with prayer. And secondly, discern. Discern. Be discerning. Um, whenever we think about action or what we should do or, or our vocation or calling, it's important to think about three things. Need, opportunity, and competency. Like, there's not an even distribution of needs across. Some places are better than others. Some places are more hurting than others. So look at specific needs. And then look for opportunity. Look for opportunity. And as you do so, consider your own competency. Not everybody is equipped to do every sort of thing. Right? God is not calling every single one of us to be foster parents, missionaries, involved in sex trafficking, and homeless shelter ministry all at the same time. Like, I, I, I want you to alleviate that, I want to alleviate that burden from your shoulders. That's not the point. And then thirdly, I want you to start local. Start local. I'm afraid so often we think about justice as pontificating on social media, sort of bemoaning the problems that plague our culture. Maybe, at best, that's raising awareness, but it's not actually fixing problems. God is calling us to something deeper. He's calling us to start local. It's very popular to say things like Black Lives Matter and maybe not even have a black friend. It's very popular to say, we need police reform, but you don't even know your police officers. Start local. Start local. And so as we close, I want to leave you with a quote. This is by a Croatian theologian named Miroslav Volf. Um, you know, the story goes that he was walking around in a really broken area, um, and he was kind of thinking, like, does, does the gospel really, how can it really change things? There was a lot of people doubting that it would, um, or that justification had anything to do with poverty and, and alleviating the lives of the poor. But this is what he says in an essay called Shopkeeper's Gold. He says this, imagine that you have no job, no money. You live cut off from the rest of society in a world ruled by poverty and violence. Your skin is the wrong color and you have no hope that any of this will change. Around you is a society governed by the iron law of achievement. Its gilded goods are flaunted before your eyes on TV screens. And in a thousand ways, society tells you every day that you're worthless because you have no achievement. You're a failure. And you know that you will continue to be a failure because there's no way to achieve tomorrow what you have not managed to achieve today. Your dignity is shattered and your soul is enveloped in the darkness of despair. But the gospel tells you that you are not defined by outside forces. It tells you that you count even more that you are loved unconditionally and infinitely, irrespective of anything you have achieved or failed to achieve. Imagine now that this gospel not, 
not only is proclaimed, but it's embodied in a community. Justified by sheer grace, it seeks to justify by grace those declared unjust by a society's implacable law of achievement. Imagine, furthermore, this community determined to infuse the wider culture along with its political and economic institutions with the message that it seeks to embody and proclaim. This is justification by grace, proclaimed in practice. A dead doctrine? Hardly. Pray with me. God, we thank you that you are just. You are righteous. There's no one like you. No one compares to you. Certainly, we don't. Yet you've stooped down to meet us in our injustice, in our unrighteous living, and you've saved us by grace. God, we know that you care for the poor and afflicted, whether it be spiritual affliction or material, circumstantial affliction. You care, and you will raise us up Jesus, you are the king who will come back and bring shalom completely. But as we live in the not yet, sort of already but not yet, I pray that we would have hope, that we would pray that, that your kingdom would come, that your will, we, your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Help us to live righteously out of a deep sense of your grace. Pray this in your name. Amen.